0: Welcome to the ML Platform Podcast, brought to you by Neptune AI, the show where Piotr Nedvedj and Aurivas Grichinas, together with top MLOps practitioners, explore the world of internal ML platforms and MLOps stack components. Today, we brought Eduardo Bonet from GitLab to talk about building MLOps capabilities as a one-person ML platform team.
1: The, the initial hypothesis is that data scientists do want to have code reviews, uh, but they can't because the tooling is not there. I was using GitLab Pipelines and then I worked
2: on migrating to Kubeflow and then I regretted it. I had a thesis that we should think about MLOps as an addition to the DevOps stack. Because that's what DevOps is about, right? Uh, Containing the flow
3: of development in a single thing.
0: Now on to the show.
3: Hello everyone and welcome to the Machine Learning Platform Podcast. As always, together with me, I have my co-host, Piotr Nedvich, who is a CEO and founder of Neptune AI. And today on the show, we have our guest, Eduardo Bonet. Eduardo Bonet is a incubation, so the staff incubation engineer in GitLab who is responsible for bringing all of the capabilities and goodies of MLOps to GitLab natively. Uh, hi, Eduardo. Hello there. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, would you mind maybe sharing a little bit more about yourself with our audience? Yeah, sure. So I've, uh,
1: I'm have i originally from Brazil, but I've been living uh, in the Netherlands for a while, for six years now. Um, I have a very weird background uh, where, well, uh, it's uh, control automation engineering, but I've always worked with uh, software development, uh, but not always at the same place. So not the same thing. So. I was a back-end, front-end Android developer, um, data scientist, machine learning engineer, and now incubation engineer. Um, I, uh, as I said, live in Amsterdam with my partner, my kid and my dog. Uh, yeah, that's the general guest. What about your bike? Uh, which one of them? You're truly There's daily, uh, there's well- the sport and there is the kid, Uh, yeah, there's a few of them.
2: And talking about talking about your background uh, more seriously, uh, maybe because to be honest, for me, it is a a term that I have never heard about incubation Mm -hmm. engineer, what is what it is about?
1: So the incubation department at GitLab, um, there's a few more incubation engineers is a group of people that try to explore either new features or try to incubate new features or new markets into GitLab. They're all, we're all engineers. So we are supposed to deliver code uh, to the code base. Um, we are supposed to find a, uh, a group or a new persona that we want to carry, we want to, uh, want to bring into GitLab, uh, talk to them, see what they want, uh, bringing new features into GitLab and explore if they want, uh, if that, those features. To make sense in GitLab or not, so it, it's a little bit of like very early development of of new features, um, and that's why the term incubation. So our engineers that are really more focused into putting the zero to eighty rather than uh, and then eventually that zero to eighty will be passed into a regular team, will which will do if it makes sense, will do the, the the eighty to ninety five or eighty to one hundred.
3: Yeah. So now so now, you, now, you're kind of a single person in the team, right? Building out uh, yes. the MLOps capabilities? Yes, so... Can you give us a glimpse into your maybe day-to-day? <laughs> How do you manage to do all of that?
1: So GitLab is great because I don't have meet- a lot of meetings, at least not internally. Uh, and so I spend most of my day actually coding. Uh, most of it is actually implementing features and then... Uh, uh, getting in contact with customers uh, either by direct contact with uh, scheduling calls with them or by reaching out to the community uh, on Slacks and uh, LinkedIn and or physical meetups. Um, to talk to them what they want, what they need, what they, what are the requirements. The one of the challenges is that it's not a customer like the the people that I have to to think about are not the users of GitLab but are the people that don't use GitLab. Those are the ones that I'm building for. Uh, those are the ones that I'm putting new features for because the ones that are already GitLab, they already use GitLab. The incubation is more how to bring new uh, markets, new people into, uh, into, into the ecosystem of GitLab, into the platform. So it's uh, if I rely only on the customers we already have, that's not enough. I need to go out and, and look at uh, users that want to use or maybe have it available, but don't, don't have reasons to use it.
3: Uh, but when it comes to, let's say, new capabilities that you are building, you mentioned that you are communicating with customers, right? So, mm-hmm. I would guess these are organizations that are doing regular software, but uh, would like to also use GitLab for machine learning, or are you straightly targeting some, th- some customers that are not yet GitLab customers, right? So, users, poss- probable users, let's call them.
1: Yes, both of them. Um... Of course, the easiest one is that customers that already have, uh, that already are on GitLab and they have a data science uh, group within uh, on that company, but that data science group doesn't find good reasons to use uh, GitLab for. So I can approach them and see, uh, and that it makes it easier because they can start using right away. Uh, But also brand new uh, users that never had. there were more data science uh, users with more data science uh, heavy workflow uh, that want to. I'm trying to find a way to to, to set their uh, DevOps, or their their uh, ML cycle, and yeah, GitLab can be a uh, an option for them.
3: And was it easy to narrow down to the capabilities that you're gonna build next? Like yeah. looking from the very beginning, let's see. Yeah, when you start.
1: So in DevOps. You- you have decided DevOps lifecycle, and I'm more looking right now at the devs part. So right up until until a model is deployed, uh, is ready for deployment. So I've started with code review. Um, I implemented Jupyter Notebook diffs uh, and code review for Jupyter Notebooks a while ago. Then model experiments. Uh, this has been released uh, recently, and now I'm implementing model registry. Uh, I started working on the model registry within the GitLab. Um, so more on this, uh, the first cycle, the ops, once you have the model registry and you once you have the, uh, once you have actually model registry, the ops, there are some things that you can add, but right now that's the main. So observability, you can add, add later once you have the registry. So that's more part of the ops, but on the dev, uh, this is what I've been looking at. Uh, code reviews, model, model experiments, model registry, uh, hopefully pipelines eventually.
3: Uh-huh. And these requests came straight from the users, I guess. It's not something- It depends, it depends.
1: Um, I was a machine learning engineer before, and I did a scientist. So a lot of uh, what I do is uh, personal pain. Uh, and I bring a lot of of, of my past experience into, looking at what could be, because I was a GitLab user before as a data scientist, both as an engineer uh, and as a data scientist. So I could see what could be done with GitLab, but I couldn't because the tooling was not really there. Um, And so I bring that, I talk a lot of customers. um, So MLflow or the model experiments was a a feature that was suggested uh, by customers uh, in the past, uh, model registry as well, so it's there are a lot of things to be done um and it's hard to choose what to, to look for and at that point is usually what i'm most excited about because uh, if i'm excited about something i can build faster and then i can build more
2: and i have a I have a question uh more on the organizational level uh, it is something that i've read at uh, at Gitlab handbook for those who don't know what it is it is a kind of open source public uh, wiki or set of documents that describes how gitlab is organized uh, and you can like for me this is a great inspiration of for how how to structure different stuff from hr engineering product uh, at the company at the software company uh, and and there was a there was a, um, paragraph about how we are starting new things, like like MLops support uh, or MLops uh, GitLab offering for MLops community, and and you're an example like of of this policy that they are starting from a like on one hand they are starting lean so you you're one man. Show right uh, one, uh, but they put super senior guy in charge of it. That I found uh, not like it. It sounds it sounds uh, for me like a smart thing to do, but surprisingly, and I I think that I've done this mistake in the past where I wanted to start something new. I wanted to start lean so, or rather, put more a junior level person in charge, because it is about being lean, right? But uh, it was not necessarily successful because you need to... This problem is not defined. So my question is, how would... Because you said, yes, you're also an engineer. What are the hats you're effectively wearing to run this? Uh, Because it sounds like interdisciplinary... Yeah. Yeah, so... There are many ways of kickstarting
1: a new initiative within a company, starting Lean or... Incubation engineers are more for the risky stuff. So things that we don't really know if it makes sense or not, or they are more likelihood to not make sense than to make sense. Um, for other cases, we can, like every team that we have, every team that is on incubation can also kickstart their own initiatives. They have their own process or of how to approach, they have more uh, more people, they have UX support, they have a lot of different ways. Our way is, we have an idea, we build it, we ship it, we test it uh, with, uh, with, with users. And for that, uh, the, the, the hats that I usually have to wear is um, mostly the, the like back-end, front-end engineer uh, to, to deploy the features that I need, product manager, uh, to talk to customers, to, to enter the process of deploying things at, at GitLab, of understanding release cycle, how to manage uh, everything around, how to manage process with other teams. Um, a little bit of UX, but I prefer to delegate UX uh, to, to actual UX uh, researchers and UX designers. Uh, but the early version, uh, I usually build, instead of like asking a UX to, or a designer to create a design, I build something and ask them to improve it. Um, so that's more uh, of the path that i have been that would be. You working. also have this design system, right? Pajamas, I'm not sure what yes. need to make. Yes, pajamas. They do. It does help a lot. Uh, at least you get the blocks uh, going, the blocks moving. But still, uh, from the blocks, to something that it's uh, it's better within GitLab. You can still build something bad even if you have blocks. Uh, so the UX we uh, I usually ask UX once there's something aligned or something more uh, tangible uh, that they can uh, look at uh, and then at this point we already can ship to users as well so they can have uh, so the UX has feedback from users directly So it's it's a bit of all a bit of uh, and then the data scientist most not really, at delivering things, but when I chat with customers, it's really helpful that I was a scientist, that I was a machine learning engineer, because then I can uh, talk in a more technical term with them or more direct terms. Um, sometimes, uh, like our the users are, they want to talk technical. They don't want to talk uh, uh, on, on a higher level. They, they want to get down to it. So that's, uh, that, that's very helpful. Um, but on the day-to-day, that, uh, the head of data science and machine learning is, is more for the conversations and for what
2: needs to be done rather for what they do right now. Who would be the next person you would invite to, to your team to support you? Like if you can choose, what would be the position? Right now, I think it would be a UX um, to bring in
1: and then uh, more engineers, I think. That's, that's how I would grow this uh, a bit more.
2: Uh, I'm asking this question because I think that what you do is a kind of extreme hardcore version of a ML platform team where ML platform team in an organization supposed to serve data science ML teams within the organization uh, but you have a broader spectrum <laughs> teams to serve so uh, that's that's why you know that's why I'm asking how you are
1: we have we have a data science but we have both I did a science and machine learning teams uh, within uh, GitLab now. Uh, so I separate both because it's one for more of like helping business make decisions and the other for more product development to using machine learning and now uh, AI as well, but so they are customers of what I build, So I have internal customers of what I build, but I try to build both in a way that we can use it internally, but also. Uh, other customers can can i it's it's great to have that direct dog footing uh, within uh, the company a lot of gitlab is built around dog footing because we are using our product for nearly everything um and having them use uh, the tooling as well uh the model experiments for example they were uh, early users and they gave me some feedback on what was working what was not uh notebook diffs as well so that's uh, that's uh that's great as well better to have them Do you, know,
3: do you know if uh, these teams, machine learning teams, are using some other third-party tools or are we fully, solely relying on what you have built?
1: No, 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 that we are using, uh, what I've built is not enough to, to for a full MLOps lifecycle or like the full broad, uh, and uh, teams are using others, uh, other tools as well.
3: Okay. So you're kind of, what you're whatever you're building probably will be eventually, replacing what we are if, using. If,
1: if what I built is better than uh, than that specific solution that they need, uh yes, then they will replace with, uh, with what I built, hopefully.
3: <laughs> okay. So you, you're now at it for around one and a half years, right? Yes. Uh, uh, like, could you describe uh, the success of your projects? How do you measure them? What are yeah. the statistics?
1: I have metrics, uh, internal metrics that I use to, to, for example, for Jupyter book diffs um, or a code review, the the initial hypothesis is that data scientists do want to have code reviews, uh, but they can't because the tuning is not there. Um, So we deployed uh, code reviews. It was the first thing that I I worked on and there was a a huge spike in code reviews after the, the feature was deployed. Even if it's, I had to hack, hack a bit how it was implemented. Um, I implemented my own version of, of devs for Jupyter Notebooks. And it was, we saw a huge spike, a sustained spike. Like there was a, a jump and then a sustained, uh, uh number of reviews being done, uh, more comments on Jupyter Notebooks. That means the hypothesis was correct. They wanted to, they just didn't have any way to do, um, that, but there's also a lot of qualitative, um, feedback that, we, that I need to rely on because like, as I said, it's not our current users that I'm looking at is new users that are coming in and for that, I use a lot of, uh, social media, and, and to, to get a little bit of like, a uh, a temperature on, on, on what users want or whether they like the features, um, and also chatting, uh, with other folks. It's funny because I went for a pub with uh, an ex-colleagues and data scientists, and there was a bug on a Jupyter and they almost maybe take my laptop to fix the bug while there. Uh, <laughs> and I did fix it in the next week, but uh, I see now a lot more, u- more data scientists coming in and asking for data scientists, data science stuff in GitLab than it was before.
3: And when you mentioned code reviews, that, do you understand correctly that what you mean is being able to display Jupyter Notebook diffs correctly? Yes. Would then uh, kind of result in code reviews because
2: you yes, exactly. do that. Yes, but, but is it uh, in a way of pull requests? Uh, like w- with pull requests or is more about, okay, here is a Jupyter Notebook. Be- because I, I see a few, let's call them jobs to be done around it. Like one, I've done something, Uh, like uh, in Jupyter notebook maybe i was doing some data exploration maybe i was doing data exploration and model training within uh, notebook i see results and i would like to get feedback maybe you know where to learn uh, where where i should uh, maybe change something like suggestions from from colleagues Uh, so it is one kind of uh, use case that comes to my mind second that i'm that I have not seen, but maybe because this functionality did was not available, a, a pull request, so kind of a merge uh, situation. The focus was exactly on the merge request flow.
1: So when you push a change to a Jupyter Notebook and you create a merge request, um, you see the diff of the Jupyter Notebook uh, with the images displayed over there, a simplified version. What I do, I convert both Jupyter notebooks to their markdown forms, do some cleanup because there's a lot of stuff in there that's not necessary, maximize information and reduce noise, and then I diff those markdown versions. And then you have, you can comment and you can discuss the markdown versions of the notebooks. For the user, it doesn't matter, like it, nothing changes for the user. There's nothing like the push and it, it it's over there, but for me, when I was data science, it's it's not even about the ones that use notebooks for machine learning. Those are important, yes, but for me, is also the data scientists that are more focused on the business uh, cases and where the final artifact of what they was their work is usually a uh, report, or and where the notebook is usually the final part of of their report, like final technical part of the report, because. It's often, at least when I was at Asante's, we would review each other's uh, documents, like the, the the papers towards the end or the, the, the reports, and there would be graphs and there would be stuff, but nobody would see what were how those graphs were generated. What was the code? What was the equations? Was there a missing plus sign somewhere that could completely flip the, the, the decision being made in the end? And that's very dangerous. Um, so I'd say that for this feature, the most important, the most, the the, the the users that can take the most of it, out of it are not the the ones that only focus on machine learning, but the ones that are more on the business side of, of data science. Uh,
2: this makes sense. This make like this concept of uh, pull request code review in the in the context of reporting makes perfect sense for me. Uh, I was not sure, uh, for instance, in model building, uh, I have not seen much of pull requests to the... Okay, maybe if you have a library, right, that is shared, or feature engineering library, then yes, pipelining, yes, but you wouldn't do pipelining necessarily notebook. At least it wouldn't be my (laughs) recommendation, but uh, yeah, makes sense.
3: But even in machine learning, the experimentation environments, I guess, benefit a lot before you actually push your pipeline to production, right?
1: Yeah. And and there's another concept is that uh, for code review for me that was important is that code review is where the where code culture grows It's a kickstarter to create a culture of development a shared uh, culture of development within uh, with your peers and data scientists don't have that not that they don't want is that if they don't they don't code review they don't talk about the code they don't share what is common what is not what a mistake best case or not. Code review for me is much less about correctness and much more about mentoring and just talking about what is being pushed. Um, And I hope that with Jupyter reviews, code reviews, along with the regular code reviews and all of the things we have, we can push this code review or this code culture to uh, data scientists in a a better way, like allow them to develop
2: this culture themselves, give the tools necessary. Uh, I really like it what you said. Uh, I've been engineers like all my life and almost all my life and code review is I, I agree like it's one of my if not the favorite part of it like if you're working as a team right and again not about correctness but about discovering how something can be done simpler differently also like uh, making sure that a team understand each other code and and you have and it is covered right so you don't depend on one person it is not obvious how to really uh, for me at least it is not obvious how to make it part of the process or process in in when you're working on models but i'm really see that we are missing something here as a mlops uh, practitioners, uh, that's, yeah, I agree.
1: And then the second the second part that comes to this, uh, to this, to the MR, are the model experiments itself. That's the second part that I'm building into model, into, I'm building it as an independent thing of, of merge requests, but uh, eventually ideally this will be part of the merge request flow. So when you push a change to model, it already runs hyperparameter uh, tuning uh, on your CI, CD pipelines. And you already display on the MR, along with the changes, what are the models, uh, the potential models, what are the potential uh, performances of each model that you can select to deploy your model, you, your candidates, what I call, Though each one is a candidate. And from the MR itself, you can select which one is the model that will go into production or will become a model version that will be consumed later. So that's the second part of, of the MRs that we're looking at.
2: Yeah, so you're saying that this will be also part the report after HPO once, okay, there is a change uh, you will conduct uh, HPO to figure out what is the quality of the, like what is the potential quality of, of the model after the, those changes. Uh, so you can, yeah, so you see that the level of merge, like we, I think we have something like that, right? When we are working the code, so you, you get a report from tests. At least unit test that yeah it passed security test passed okay looks good.
1: The same way you have this for for dev where you have security scanning where you have uh, dependency scanning and everything, you're gonna have the report of the candidates that are being generated for that merge request. And then you have a view of what changed. Uh, you have the you have you can track track down where the change came from and how that did impact over time the, the model. Or the experiment itself, um, and then you can deploy to the model once the merge request uh, is, is merged.
3: I have a question here. So it comes. It is about uh, making your machine learning training pipeline part of your CI/CD pipeline. Because if I hear correctly, you're kind of treating it as the same thing. Uh, correct.
1: There are multiple pipelines that you the, that you can to look at, take a look at, and uh, there are multiple tools that do pipelines and GitLab pipelines are more thought up for the CICD uh, which is after the code is in the in the repository and there are other tools that are better at running the pipeline uh, any pipeline like kubeflow or, or airflow so what a lot of our users do they use GitLab for uh, CICD once the code is there and they, they trigger the pipeline they use GitLab to orchestrate triggering pipelines on Kubeflow or uh, whatever tool they are using or Airflow or something, usually one of the two. Um, But some people also use only GitLab pipelines and I used to do that. So when I was a machine learning engineer, I was using GitLab pipelines and then I worked on migrating to Kubeflow and then I regretted it. Uh, because for my use case, my models were not that big. It was fine to run on, on the CI CD of pipeline, and it, I didn't need to deploy a whole other set of tooling uh, to handle my use case. So it was just better to leave it at GitLab. Uh, we are working on improving uh, the CIC, our, our pipeline runner. So now on 16.1, which is now, we have uh, runners with uh, GPU. So if you need GPU, you can use GitLab uh, runners for that. Um, And there are other needs that we th- need to improve to make them better at handling the data science use case of pipelines. Because they start earlier than it usually does with uh with regular, uh well not regular, but software development.
2: And Warta, when you said uh, like uh, GitLab runners support GPU now or have, like you can pick up one with GPU. I w- I'm not, uh, we are by the way GitLab users uh, as a company. Um, but I was not aware that, or maybe I misunderstood it. Do you also serve, like provides your customers with infrastructure or you're rather a proxy over uh, cloud providers? Uh, how does it work? Uh, I think this was with a
1: partnership, uh, that we provide those. This is for GitLab, for, for, self. so there are two types of users of GitLab. One is self-managed, you can deploy your own, uh, GitLab for those users. We have GPU for a while. So self-managed users can were able to use uh, GPU, their own GPU runners for a while. Now, what was released in this uh, new version uh, is that we provide on GitLab.com. So, if you're a user of the SaaS platform, uh, you can uh, use uh, uh, GPU-enabled runners as well.
2: Understand. Thanks. Uh, I. Yeah, like I, I wanted to really ask you about that because uh, it, it was, by the way, how how we, OK, we maybe have not chat lo- a lot, but a uh, few months ago, maybe half a year or more, I shared a blog post uh, on uh, MLOps community Slack about, about uh, relation, uh, MLOps relation to DevOps. And basically, I had a thesis that we should think about MLOps as addition to the DevOps stack rather than stack, like kind of independent stack next to DevOps stack that is inspired by DevOps but is independent. And and, uh, yeah, like I'm curious from your perspective, you're in a... Dev Sec Ops company, right? How it is how GitLab uh, at least today present uh, themselves. So you know uh, you have a lot of DevOps customers and 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 you really understand the processes uh, there. At the same time, you have a lot of experience in data science in ML and and you're running ML Ops initiative at GitLab. What in your opinion we are missing in a traditional DevOps stack to support MLOps processes use cases. What what is really missing? A lot of things. So for me, the
1: difference between the MLOps and DevOps is there is no difference. It's the same thing. It's uh, DevOps is like the art of deploying useful software and MLOps is the art of deploying useful software that includes machine learning features. That's uh, the, the difference between two of them. And so this including machine learning features, of course, uh, we cannot fall into the trap as a DevOps company to say that, okay, you can just use DevOps. There are some use cases. There are some specific features necessary for the MLOps workflow that are not present on the on the uh, traditional software development, I will call it that way. Um, and that stems from the non-determinism of uh, 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 of machine learning. So when you have code, you write the code and you code, you have out inputs and you have outputs. You know the logic, the logic is written, it's over there. You might not know the results eventually, but the logic is there. And on on on, on uh, machine learning, you can, at some models you can define the logic, but most of them, you can just approximate what it's the logic that is happening over there. They learn from the data. So there's... The process of teaching them of allowing the model to extract uh, the the patterns from the data is one part that is not really present on uh, on traditional software development so that's part of kind of like the user uh, or the developer they are developing the patterns of the input data to the output data Um, and then there's the other part is how do you know if it is doing what it's supposed to be doing but to be fair, that is also present on DevOps. That's, that's why you do A-B testing and things like that on, uh, on, on regular software. Because even if you know what the change, the output of the change is, it doesn't mean that the users will see that in the same way. So you might, for example, you don't know if it will actually be a better product if you deploy the change uh, that you have it. So you do A-B testing, you do user testing, you do... I don't. Uh, yes. So that part is also present but it's even more important for machine learning because it's the only way you know if it's working or not on regulars or on traditional software you deploy the change you at least know that if it is correct like you can test if the if the change is correct even if you don't know if it's uh if it does like it moves the metrics or not but you can test if, it's, if it is correct or not but for machine learning that is the only way usually that you can like you can implement tests, but tests are non-deterministic, so the regular testing um, stack that you use as software development don't really apply for, for machine learning because you're going to have a lot of flaky tests by the definition of, of, of machine learning. Um, and uh, so your final, your way of determining if that is correct will be in production. You can, at most, proxy if it works the way you intended to, but you can only know if it actually works the way intended intended at uh, at uh, the, the production level. So it puts stresses in different places than regular than traditional software development. It includes everything that traditional software development has, but it p- puts new stresses on different areas. And to be fair, every single way of development puts stresses on somewhere. For example, Android development puts its own stresses uh, on on how to develop, on how to deploy. Uh, For example, you don't, you cannot know what is the version that a user is using. That is a problem that is specific, not specific, but very apparent on mobile development. And ML is another way of, of, another application of this. It will have its own stresses that will require its own tooling.
0: Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30 seconds pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so. We help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and see the results in the web app. Organize and display it however you want. Search, debug and compare experiments, datasets and models. Save your production-ready models to a centralized registry and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us in. For more, go to NeptuneAI. Or check our docs. They're pretty good. I hope write them.
2: Hope it was 30 seconds. Back to the show. Maybe, m- like, talking more on examples, okay? Mm, let's say that we have a like product company, SaaS company that uh, has been, so far, has been not using machine learning, at least on production level, right? But they are very so- sophisticated or following the best practices when it comes to software development. So CICD, let's say they have GitLab, they have dedicated... SRE team, they have engineering team, DevOps team. Uh, they are monitoring their software in production using, let's say, Splunk, like, I'm, you know, I'm uh, uh, building the tech stack on the fly. But they are about to uh, release on production two models, one recommender system. Second, it will be, let's say, a chat bots for the, their documentation and SDK. Uh, there, there, there are two data science teams, but those the ML teams are built of data scientists, so they are not necessarily uh, skilled in MLOps or DevOps. And you have you have DevOps team. What like and you're a CTO What would you do here? Like, shall DevOps team support them in moving it to production? Shall we start from thinking about setting up ML Ops team? What would be practical? Your recommendation uh, here. My
1: recommendation doesn't really matter very much. But what I would potentially do is start with the DevOps team supporting. And identifying within that specific company what are the bottlenecks that the, the existing DevOps uh path doesn't support. For example, retraining. Uh, but in a way, to implement retraining, probably the DevOps team is the best one uh, to work on that. They might not know exactly what a retraining is, but they know how the the the, the, the infrastructure is, they know how to how everything works over there. It might be that the DevOps team is split if there is enough demand eventually uh, and it becomes a ML platform in itself. Uh, but if you don't want to hire anyone, if you don't want to grow a, if you want to start, like we're talking about start lean, perhaps picking up someone uh, from the DevOps team, from, from the area into supporting your mach- your uh, data scientist could be the best way of starting.
2: The set of customers of GitLab is quite big, so, but. Let's talk about those you met, okay, personally. Have you seen uh, DevOps engineers or DevOps teams successfully supporting ML teams? Uh, Do you see some, like, common patterns? How do DevOps engineers are, like, what is the path for a DevOps engineer to get familiar with MLOps processes and 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 be ready to be called MLOps engineer?
1: It usually fails uh, when one does something and ships to the other to do their thing. So let's say the the data scientist spends a few months doing their modern model and then, oh, I have a model, deploy it, Uh, that doesn't work really. They need to be involved early, but that's true for software development as well. So if you say that you're developing something, some new feature, some new service, and then you deploy, you make the entire service, and then you go to the DevOps team and say, "Okay, deploy this thing." That doesn't really work. There are going to be a lot of issues on deploying that software. And there's a lot more stress in this when you talk when you talk about uh, machine learning because fetching data can be slower, or there's more processing, or I don't know. Um, the model itself can be really heavy, so loading that into memory during uh, during run. So it's better if they are at the process, not perhaps not really doing anything, like not really working on it, but at the meetings and discussions, following the, the, the issues, following the threads, uh, giving insight before, so that when the model is on a stage that it can be deployed, uh, then uh, it's easier. But for me, it's also important to the model not be the first solution that it's there. So deploy first, it's... Even if it's a bad one, a bad classical software solution, uh, that doesn't perform as well and then improve. I see machine learning much more as an optimization for most cases, uh, than the first solution that you employ, uh, to solve that. So yeah. Um, I've seen it being successful. I've seen also data scientist teams trying to support themselves and succeeding and failing, uh. DevOps teams succeeding and failing at supporting, ML platforms succeeding and failing at support. Uh, so there's no, it will depend on the, on the company culture. It would depend on the people that are on this, on these groups, but communication are usually at least makes these problems a little bit less. Involve the people before, uh, not really. And when you, at the moment you are deploying the thing.
3: And what is your opinion about? these end-to-end machine learning teams, like fully self-service machine learning teams, uh, then being able to manage the entire um, development and monitoring flow encapsulated in a single team, because that's what DevOps is about, right? Uh, Containing the flow of development in a single team.
1: I might not be the best person because I'm biased, because I I do end-to-end stuff. Uh, I like it, I think, it reduces the number of hops you have to go. It reduces the number of the, the communication um, loss of team to team. Uh, you have I like teams that are multidisciplinary, even product, like especially product ones. You have your back end, your front end, your PM and everybody together. Um, and then you have like the, the uh, you build, you deploy or something, you build a ship or kind of like mentality that you are responsible for your own DevOps and then there's a DevOps platform that builds. Uh, my opinion, I prefer when uh, when they take uh, ownership of end-to-end, of really going and, okay, we're going to go from talking to the customer of, of understanding what they need, even the engineers. I, want the, I, I like to see engineers talking to customers or our support, all then to deploy in the future. All then to the to to shipping it and measuring it and iterating over it.
3: And what would be then the composition of this team which would be able to deliver machine learning products to it? It will have, of course, its
1: data scientist uh, or a machine learning engineer. Nowadays, I prefer to start more on the software than on the on the data science part. So a machine learning engineer would be start with the software, then machine learning engineering, then the data scientist eventually. Uh, to make it even better uh, for, of course, depending on the penalty is cases and, and everything that is involved, but, and uh, the front-end. So start with the feature that you're building front-end, back-end, then uh, add your machine learning engineer, then add your data science. The machine learning engineer can also do a lot more with, uh, uh, with, the, with the DevOps part as well. The, the important part is to ship fast, to ship something, even if it's bad in the beginning and iterate of something that is bad rather than trying to find something that is good and just deploy six months later but at a point you don't even know if the users want that or not you deploy that mo- a really nice model that no one cares yes yes for us it's the iterate value it's, it's better you you tend to de- deploy better products by shipping small things faster rather than trying to get you the good p- product, because your definition of good is only on your head. Your users have another definition of, of good, and you only know their definition of good by putting things for them to, to, to use or to test. Uh, and if you do it small chunks, it's they can consume it better than if you just say, okay, this is, there is this huge feature here for you, please test it.
3: I have some questions uh, that relate back to your work at GitLab. So one of them is uh, you're now building kind of native capabilities in GitLab, including experiment tracking. I know that it's kind of implemented uh, via MLflow client, but you have all of the server underneath uh, managed by yourself. How did you decide not to bring a third party tool and rather build this natively?
1: It was a very known, uh, it was a, usually something, that's something that something I don't do. I don't like re-implementing stuff myself, but like I mentioned, GitLab, is uh, we cater to, self-managed, uh, to our self-managed customers, and GitLab is a Rails, uh, mostly Rails monolith. So the code base is Rails, Ruby on Rails, and it doesn't use microservices. So it becomes kind of problematic to deploy another. We can, but then we have to like I could deploy MLflow behind the, the behind feature flag, like install GitLab and then we'll get MLflow at the same time. Um but then I'll have to handle how to install on all the different places that GitLab is installed at, which are a lot. Uh I've seen I think on a mainframe or something. So I don't wanna handle all of those uh those installations. And second, I want to be able to integrate across the platform. So I don't want to, I I don't want model experiments to be its own like vertical feature, like I mentioned, I want this to be integrated with the CI. I want this to be integrated with the merge request. I want to be integrated with issues. And if the data is on GitLab database, it's much simpler to cross-reference all these things. So for example, I already deployed uh, last week, uh, integration with the CI CD. So if you create uh, your... uh, Candidate or your run through GitLab CI, you can pass a flag and we we'll already connect the the candidate to the CI job, and you can have merge. You can see the merge request. You can see the, the CI. You can see the logs. You can see everything. So you want to be able to to get, to to manage that, like on our side, it makes it better for the users uh, if we own this on on, uh, on GitLab side. It does mean we had, I had to strip out a lot of the features that MLflow server has. So for example, there are no visualizations in GitLab at this point. Um, and I'll be adding them uh, over time. Uh, this will come. I had to make the, the simplest or the, 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 co- the corest, like the, the, what is, the, 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 distill this to the minimum to be able to deploy something that is useful. Uh, and over time, we'll be adding, but that's was the reasoning uh, behind re-implementing the backend and using uh, Moflow client, still, while still using Moflow client.
2: You're calling this is part of iterate, you're calling it my minimal viable change, you know, this concept of implementing the, what, well, how we call it, the chorus.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's even a little bit below that, the minimum, because now that it's available, users can, uh, Tell what's needed to be become the minimum for
2: them to be useful. So how do you how because because it is is private stuff. <laughs> we I'm uh, yeah because we are uh, product as a pro, product team. We are inspired heavily by GitLab and uh, recently I was asked. Okay, Piotr, uh, we can yeah like to bring for us like minimal viable. Value to change that would bring value uh, is too big to be done in one sprint. But we need to have a. I think it was something around webhooks and system and, and have setting some foundations for webhooks. So a system that can repeat uh, the call if if uh, the system that you receive the call is down. So it, so basically the change was about uh, bringing something, some foundation for something that would bring value to the end user. But it wouldn't be, would you do that? How, how would you do it at GitLab? Like in order, for instance, to bring the value to the user, you need to set a kind of backend, implement something in the backend that wouldn't be exposed to the user. Would it fit to a sprint of GitLab at GitLab or
1: not? It, is. it does. A lot of what I did was not visible or not really useful. I almost, I spent five months working on this a model experiments until it was a point where I could say I couldn't board the first user that was not dogfooding. So it was five months. I still had to find ways of getting feedback meanwhile. So either by the, by with the, my videos that I share every now and then to discuss even if it's just discussing the way you are going to or where you the vision so you can get a, a feeling whether people want that vision or not or uh, are there better ways uh, to achieve that vision um but it's work that it has to be done even if it's not not every work will be visible uh, uh even even if you go iterative you can still go in iterative ways of work that it's not visible but it needs to be done. So, so I don't know. Uh, I had to refactor how packages are handled on our model experiments, on our uh, on experiment tracking. That, and it's all more of a change that would make my life easier over time than to the
2: user. But it was still necessary uh, to be done. Um, so there is no silver bullet. Uh, yeah, because we we were we were struggling uh, with this type of approach and and I was super curious how you do it because at the first glance it sounded for me at least that every change has to bring some value to the user. I don't think every change because then
1: you fall into traps and then it puts some uh, uh, some major stresses like it puts some biases on your decision making to short-term things that need to be delivered, 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 delivered and it puts things like code quality for example that will be pushed away on that line of thinking, but both ways are necessary. Like you cannot use only one. Like if you only use MVC, 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 MVC all the time, you're gonna have, you're gonna have an MVC in the end. And users don't really want an MVC; they want a product, they want something tangible. And there's no silver bullet. That's why
2: uh, software engineering is uh, is challenged. Yeah. I've heard some research uh, around, and it can be a segue to next uh, theme of large language models, that maybe large language models would allow us to explain in a, in a way or understand the way we can understand uh, models. Uh, so there is uh, opportunity in explainability space to use uh, foundational models. But, We'll see. Uh, So, yeah, talking about because if we are recording uh, podcasts in 2023, it would be strange not to ask about it, sorry, because uh, (laughs) we are asking because I think uh, (laughs) everybody is asking uh, questions around uh, large language models, but trying to talk uh, not about uh, impact on humanity, all of that are fair questions. but. Here, let's talk a, a little bit more tactically. So, from your perspective and current understanding uh, of uh, how we can use, how businesses can use on production, large language models, foundational models, do you see, what, what would be, what, do you, what are the similarities you see to MLOps? What would stay in a similar way? What is completely not needed? And what, would, what type of jobs to be done are missing in tradi- traditional, <laughs> recent MLOps stack? So, kind of a diff. We have MLOps stack. Okay, we have DevOps, right? We added MLOps. There was a diff. We discussed that. And we are adding large language models to the picture. What is the diff?
1: I think between lmops and mlops so there's two components here so when you're talking about the lmops you can think as a prompt plus the 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 model the 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 large model that you're using as a model itself like the conjunction of them as a model and from there on it will behave very much the same as a regular machine learning model so you're going to need the same observability levels the same things that you need to take care about on deploying the production. Um, On the create side though, uh, only now we're seeing a little bit more taking uh, prompts as its own artifacts that you need to version, that you need to discuss, that you need to provide the right person, people, ways of changing that, that you need to measure, that you need to explore, that they will have different behaviors on different models that any change so the life cycle of the prompt itself there are some companies i've seen that are starting to implement it uh so having a prompt registry where the product manager can go and change the prompt without needing a uh, back end to go into the code base or front end to go into the code base to change that themselves that is one of them and that's an early one because right now at least You only have a prompt that you probably populate with data, but or meta prompts or second layer prompts or build up, yeah. But the further level is prompt generating prompts, and that level we haven't explored yet. So there's another whole level of of, of ops uh, over there that we don't know about yet. So, how do you take how can you manage? Ops that generate, like a prompts that generate prompts or pass on uh, flags. For example, I can have a prompt where I pass an option that appends something to the prompt. Okay. Be short, be small, uh, uh, be concise, for example. So that l- development of prompts, prompts will become its own language, programming language that we need to like functions are defined as prompts. Uh, you pass arguments that are prompts in itself uh to these functions uh and that can ch- that will change a lot on how we do so you a little bit of the agents now uh that's a little bit of what i'm talking about um how do you manage your agents into your uh into your into your stack how do you manage versions of agents or what they're doing right now uh, the impact of them into the end uh, uh when you have like five or six different agents interacting so there are a lot of challenges that we don't really know about yet because it's so early on uh, the process it's like two months that
2: this became like actually usable on product just wanted to add observation that in the most use cases if it's on the production there is human in the loop sometimes the human in the loop is a customer right especially if we are if we are talking about the chat type of experience but I'm curious to see use cases of foundational models in in uh, yeah like you in in the context where human is not available, like predictive maintenance, uh, uh, predict demand prediction, credit risk scoring, like things that you would like to truly automate in a, without having human in the loop. How it will behave? How, how we would be able to test validate those like I'm not even sure whether we should should call them models right models and prompts and uh, agent configuration another question uh, that's uh, I, I I'm curious what you think how or will we and if yes how will we connect foundational models with more classical deep learning, machine learning models. Would it be connected via agents or differently or not at all? I think it will be through agents
1: because agents is the current, is a very broad abstraction that you can pretty much include anything as agents. So it's really, really easy to say agents because, well, you can do that with agents, our policies or whatever. Uh, but... I think so, because that's how you provide uh, more context. So, like for example, search, uh, search is very complicated when you have too many labels that you cannot encode in a prompt. So you need either a easy way of finding, like a dumb way of of running a query that you have an agent or a tool. Uh, some of them name this as tool as well. So you have a tool that uh, you give your agent tools, basically. Um, so this can be very simple as running a query, this can be very simple as saying something, or this can be more complicated as making a request to an API that predicts. And you could say that the the, the agent will learn how to pass the right uh, parameters to this uh, API. For example, you'll still be using Generative AI because you are not be coding the whole pipeline, but some parts, it makes sense. Even if you have something working, Perhaps it's better if you split off uh, some uh, into deterministic chunks that you know what what's the output of, of that specific tool
2: that you want. So uh, last, my last question, I would play devil advocate here. So maybe like maybe maybe GitLab should skip ML ops part and just focus on large language models ops part. It's it's going to be quite likely bigger market. Will we? Need in other words, will we need MLOps with, when we would be using large language models? Does it make sense to 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 invest in it?
1: I think so. I think we're still learning the boundaries of when uh, to apply ML, uh, classic ML and why every model has its own uh, places where it's better and when it's not. And LLMs are as well part of this. I always have this. So there will be cases where regular ML uh, is, is better. It might be that LLM, uh, llms will become like you first deploy your your feature with alarm and then improve the software and then improve with uh, with machine learning uh so ml becomes the third level of optimization over there i don't think llm will kill ml i don't think that's uh that's like nothing kills anything like so people have been saying that ruby would be dead and Cobol would be dead and java would be dead and, and i i don't know uh, decision tree would be that because now you have uh, uh, neural networks every even if it's just to keep the simplicity sometimes you don't want those more complicated features you want something uh, that you can have control of, that you know what was the input and the output why GitLab should focus on uh, LM ops and MLOps I think that, that, that's a tough question, but I think for now, uh, at the beginning, right now, until we start learning what is LMOPS, MLOps is a better focus because we have a better understanding how this fits into GitLab itself. Uh, but it's something we are thinking about, like how to use, because we are also using LLMs internally, right? So we are dogfooding our own problems with how to deploy uh, AI f- AI-backed features. So we are learning with it. And yes, those could become a product eventually. Those could become prompt management could become a product eventually. Uh, But at this point, even for us to handle our own models, the model registry is more of a concern rather than a prompt registry or whatever.
3: Uh, So Eduardo, it was really nice talking with you. Do you have anything that you would like to share with our listeners?
1: Model experiments that we've been talking about is available for our users uh, on GitLab as 16.0, so if you want to test it out, uh, I will leave a link to the to, the, to the documentation. Uh, if you want to follow what I do, I usually post a, a short YouTube video every two weeks or so uh, of advancements, so there's a playlist that you can follow as well. Um, and if you're in Amsterdam, uh, drop by the MLOps community meetup that
3: we organize. Uh, thank you, Eduardo. Super glad to have, have had you here. And also thank you to everyone who was listening and see you in
0: the next episode. The ML Platform Podcast was brought to you by Neptune AI. If you'd like to learn more about ML Platforms and MLOps, check our blog at neptune.ai slash blog, follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, check out how we help teams solve MLOps challenges with our experiment tracking at neptune.ai. To get notified of future episodes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.